and we'll be able to build it and play it. Well, good morning. <coughs> Just over 35 years ago, I'd finished university and I'd been saving some money. And I asked my dad if he'd pay for a flight, <coughs> which he did. And I flew to Israel for the first time. I was on my own. I had a rucksack, enthusiasm, a map, and a few contacts of people I could visit. Friends of friends, Arabs, Jews, missionaries. Landed in Israel and took a bus to Jerusalem where I ended up the first night in the youth hostel with about a thousand other European visitors, as far as I could see, young people from all over Europe and North America who were sightseeing. And for four weeks, I used my map to navigate around the whole country to go from north to south to east to west, visit all sorts of people in all sorts of places, traveling, generally speaking, by bus. One of the first places I wanted to visit was Jericho. Jericho is about 20 miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits in a hillside area. It's about 2,500 feet above sea level in the center of the country. And Jericho sits right down by the River Jordan, which happens to be the lowest place on the surface of the earth, about 850 feet below sea level because of a geological fault known as the Rift Valley. So I got in a bus, and what I tried to do in those days was always try and sit in the front seat of the bus because you can take the best photographs through the front window. little tip for you if you're traveling. So I had my camera, and we traveled 20 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. And during that time, it was downhill, 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 and downhill. We lost more height than you would if you went 500 feet above Snowdon and you drove all the way down to sea level in North Wales. And we got to Jericho, and I was heading off down to the Dead Sea after that, spent half a day in Jericho, and it's a very arid area, sort of mini desert around there. It's called the Judean Wilderness. But as you approach Jericho, you notice something immediately. Palm trees. The Bible calls it the city of palms. And you notice vegetation and uh, cultivation of fruit and vegetables. Lovely fruit cultivated there. And then I realized when I was walking around the city that there are a lot of springs. There's a lot of natural water that suddenly comes up in the middle of nowhere. All around is very arid, but Jericho has an, an abundant supply of water. And then as I, as I walked around, I noticed that everywhere around the edge, there was archaeological ruins, huge archaeological ruins. And people have been digging away there for over 100 years. And they found astonishing amounts of ruins I took one photograph, which I've just looked up, where there were 
20 or more layers, different layers of archaeological ruins all piled up on top of each other. Some archaeologists have discovered signs of sudden collapse of walls and buildings at a certain period of history. And some archaeologists say it's the oldest known city of human habitation anywhere in the world. And it's even been suggested it might be the first and oldest city that was fortified by walls. This is Jericho today. A fascinating city. It lies six miles from the River Jordan. And we left the story last week for those who were here with Joshua miraculously leading the Israelite army, the armed men from all the tribes, through the Jordan miraculously. And they came up the other side. And there before them lay Jericho. Now, because of the archaeology, we can have a rough idea of what the city might have looked like, which Andy's going to show us right now. This is just an artist's impression. So if you're an Israelite soldier with Joshua, and you've crossed the River Jordan, and by the way, there's no easy way back over the River Jordan once you've crossed it. The water didn't back up for that long. Have you noticed that? So once you're in, you're in. Ever had that feeling? That's what the Christian life is like, by the way. Once you're in, you're in. And you need God to move forward. But there before them lay this astonishing city. So this artist's reconstruction is approximate, but it's based on archaeological evidence of the shape and size of the city that we're pretty confident about. And you see the walls. And Joshua had a choice. Because beyond Jericho, you go up the hills and you can get to all the little small towns and villages which are easy to conquer. But if he goes past Jericho and he doesn't conquer Jericho on the way, he's lost his supply line to the other side of the Jordan where food and, and support for the soldiers will be coming across. So there's an interesting lesson here. If you're facing something big and challenging, don't just go around the edge of it. We'll come back to that later. Now, Joshua had had some amazing experiences of God's grace, but the next question, he didn't know the answer to the next question, which is, how are we going to conquer Jericho? They didn't take any heavy artillery through the River Jordan. They didn't have howitzer guns. They didn't have tanks. They just had their basic soldier's outfit, shields and swords. Maybe they had small projectiles. But how are you going to get into that city? The walls of that city are much higher than this wall here on the back of this building. So Joshua's in this awkward position where God's done an incredible miracle, but he's still stuck. And if, if another miracle doesn't happen, he's not only stuck, he's stuffed, to put it in the vernacular. He's going to look ridiculous. Because who knows how many soldiers are inside there? 
And who knows what reinforcements are going to come from other parts of the land once the king of Jericho sends out message and say, let's have some reinforcements from the other Canaanite tribes. And it's at this moment that something staggering happens. Joshua 5 and verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals. For the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in and no one came out. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king, its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry seven trumpets in front of us. Who's the commander? I'm often asked this question. Who is this commander? Is it Jesus? Many people think it is. Probably this is an angel. One of the commanding and significant angels of the Lord. There are a number of references in Judges to similar experiences with Samson's mother, with uh, Gideon and others where an angel appears. And I believe that Joshua here had an appearance of an angel, uh, an encounter that shook him, made him very, uh, very reverent, very humbled, very uncertain, very keen to listen. He, the Lord encountered him in his moment of need. And this same Lord, by the way, who encountered Joshua in his moment of need encounters us, encounters us in our moments of need. And for some of you, even today, that could be the most important thing you'll hear this morning, that he encounters us at our time of need. We can't think of Joshua here as self-confident and swaggering and happy. He's in a tremendously vulnerable position. He's got the river behind us and he's not certain how he can get back over the other side and he's got a huge city before us with an unknown army inside that could burst out of the gates of the city at any minute. And the Lord comes through an angel and speaks to Joshua, the servant of the Lord, and gives him 
very particular instructions. They're well known. But the context and the feel of this is not so well known to us. And so he commands the army, right, okay guys, we're going round the city every day. 11 o'clock in the morning, assembly. After breakfast and orders have been given, weapons distributed, camp cleaned. We want the whole army gathered in tribes and we're marching. Here's the order of tribes. We're going right the way around the city. Priests, you're at the front. Trumpeters, get ready and you're going to be a long, long bit of trumpeting every day. By 12.30, it's all over, and they're back to their tents, have a cup of tea, and they say, what on earth is Josh up to? Has he gone bonkers? And then the next day, the same. And again, and again, and again, and again. Joshua holds his nerve, thinks back to what the commander said, and thinks, well, I've got no choice but obedience. By the way, We have no real choice but obedience when God speaks to us. All other choices will lead into difficulty. And the seventh day comes. Verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time round, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout! For the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it is to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all her with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you'll make the camp of Israel liable to destruction to bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, And they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. As I said last week, we view in this church these events as real historical events, not fairy stories or myths or Sunday school tales. Now, how did God do it? Was it an earthquake? Was it some other divine force? We don't know the answer to that question. But what we do know is that something suddenly happened. And this seemingly impregnable city suddenly collapsed. The walls began to crack here and there and the men charged in. But the inhabitants had already been intimidated long before this. And Rahab had got wind of the extraordinary miracles that God had performed for the Israelites while they were the other side of the Jordan. And so in chapter 2, verse 11, 
She said, Our hearts melted in fear when we heard of what God had done. Everyone's courage failed because of you. The Lord your God is the Lord your God is God in heaven above all and above the earth below. And so there was a sense of intimidation, a sense of vulnerability inside the camp in Jericho, and they were overwhelmed. Some people ask, well, why did it have to be so much destruction? It's a good question. 400 years or so earlier, when God promised the land to Abraham, he said, your people aren't going to come into this land now. Abraham was living there at the time. He said, because the sins of the Amorites or the Canaanites, those people, have not yet reached their full measure. But you'll come back and you'll take the land. So Abraham had this promise. The interesting thing about these people is they had at least three opportunities to know about the God of Israel in previous generations, all of which they'd rejected. Number one, Abraham had lived among them for many, many years and they'd seen the incredible blessing on his life and his incredible prowess and he'd lived there. The Hebrews, the beginning of the Hebrew people had lived amongst them before they had to leave, but they didn't respond to Abraham. Not only that, in Abraham's time, one of their own kings had a miraculous revelation that Yahweh was the God of Israel and his name was Melchizedek. He was called in the Old Testament a priest to the Lord and he was king of a city called Salem. That's Jerusalem. A Canaanite king of Jerusalem who worshipped Yahweh right in the midst of them at the time of Abraham just appears in the narrative. There were some of those people who knew that Yahweh was the true God. And not only that, in Abraham's time, God showed the danger of not following him in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, all these three things passed them by. And they carried on in their ways. And so the time came when God gave the land to the Israelites. Now, the person I want to talk to you about this morning particularly is Rahab. We spoke of Rahab last time, and if you were here in the last talk, you'll remember the extraordinary story where Joshua sent some spies into Jericho beforehand just to work out how he was going to try and capture the city. They came into conversation with Rahab. Sorry to repeat this from last time, but just to catch you up with the story, she was a disreputable lady, um, a, a prostitute. She didn't have any reputation there. Uh, she got talking to them and she said to them, you, you Israelites, I've got a feeling you're on the right side. I've, I've had a revelation about Yahweh, your God. In fact, I want to tell you, I want to worship your God because I don't believe in my God anymore. And I want to help you. And the king was looking for the spies. There was a rumor they got into the city and she said, look, I'll let you out. I'll let you out because my house is by the wall. Do you remember the walls I just showed you? Her house her so-called house, and not a, not, not a separate dwelling with a garden and all that sort of stuff, but her dwelling was built into the wall. So she said, look, they might close the gates, but I can just let you out over the wall. And as she let them down through the wall, do you remember that there was a sign? Because they said, look, we're coming back. We're going to conquer this city, but we're going to spare the life of yourself, but not just you, your family and your friends. 
But you've got to do one thing. We can see that you're using a scarlet, a red cord in the rope that's going down over the wall. Now look, Rahab, when we come back, the soldiers will be given a sign by Joshua, our commander, and they'll be given this sign, look for the red cord and spare the people in that house. Here's a modern version. So she had this red cord. And from that day onwards, she placed the red cord by the window of her house, probably on the wall, maybe on the front door as well. And she just placed it there, waiting for the time. And the neighbors would say, What's that strange little red thing? Oh, it's just, just, a, you know, just a little ornament. And then when the army came in, as the next text tells us, if we read on a little bit further, they looked for Rahab. And this red cord, I want you to think about this, insignificant, isn't it? This, in this story, is a symbol of faith. Because I want to tell you the story of Rahab from the point of view of looking out of the wall when the army was marching around. She'd had a choice between the spies coming and the Israelites surrounding the city. What could she have done? She had an easy option. What was the easy option? Scarpa. Leave the city. Go up to the hills to your relatives somewhere else. Get through the gate and if they close the gate you can let yourself down through the wall because you're, you're by the wall anyway. Rahab could have said to her family, look, I said to those Israelites I'd hang around, but really this is getting scary. I'm I'm not hanging around. We're going to go. And guess what? She didn't. She stayed at the point of maximum danger, humanly speaking. Do you understand that? Maximum danger. She's actually by the wall. She's not in the, even in the inner part of the city, which might be defended. She's right on the wall. She doesn't know that the walls are going to start crumbling. She's in a very vulnerable point. And what does she put her trust in? She puts her trust in Yahweh. She puts her trust in the word of the spies. And she puts her trust in the symbol of her newfound faith in Yahweh, which is a mere scarlet cord or thread, a red thread, which is hanging outside her house as a sign to the incoming Israelite army whenever they happen to arrive. Do you consider that somewhat heroic? I think it's astonishing. It wasn't just her faith when the spies came, it's her faith during this traumatic week when she's in the city and she knows like she knows like she knows this city is going to fall and she looks at the king and she looks at the army inside and they're not doing anything. They're intimidated, they're passive, they're just waiting and hoping that this threat is going to go away and Joshua's going to move on, but he didn't. And very wonderfully, she's rescued. And the writer, a little bit later, says, 625, her whole family is rescued. And she lives amongst the Israelites to this very day. 
So they said to Rahab, look, and to her parents and to the rest of her family and friends, you can be one of us. You've adopted our God. We're going to take you into our... You can be part of the tribes of Israel. That's what the Israelites did in the Old Testament, by the way. Those who joined them became part of one of the tribes. Gentiles just joined in if they took the full faith of Yahweh. So Rahab took the full faith of Yahweh and she stayed with the Israelite people for the rest of her life and was given a place of honor amongst them. There's three things that I just feel we can learn from this passage. Number one, the incredible importance of God's guidance. The whole story hinges on God giving a plan to Joshua and Joshua carrying it out. When Joshua was in an incredibly difficult situation, God gave him a plan. Now, if we look in the New Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit's intention is to guide us. Galatians 5.25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I believe that Christians often underestimate the extent to which God wants to actually show us in detail, specifically, what he wants us to do. We had a very interesting example from Nick earlier on. That was very moving, wasn't it? About his business. God can speak to us about our relationships, our health, our psychological problems, our financial problems, our business life, our future. He doesn't always give a detailed blueprint, but he does give us indicators of where he wants us to be and what he wants us to do. And do you avail yourself of that guidance? Joshua was on the forefront. He was looking for God's guidance, and God's guidance came. We need a listening ear. Second thing that is very impressive about this story is the power of a life of faith. There are two heroes in the story and they're from the opposite ends of the spectrum. One is obviously Joshua, but the other one is Rahab. And when you go to the book of Hebrews, which sort of covers some of the main events in the Old Testament in Hebrews 11 when talking about the power of faith, the writer of Hebrews makes this very powerful statement. Hebrews 11.30 By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. Then, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So the writer of all the whole history of Joshua and the conquest picks out the fall of Jericho and picks out two people who are categorically different. One, we have the anointed Jewish leader with years and years of experience and training, 
and huge leadership gifts, and we say, he had an amazing faith. But in the same phrase, it picks out Rahab, a Gentile prostitute with no background, no privilege, no, no leadership, no nothing, but she responded with clear faith to the revelation God had give, given her and was given a place of honor in the nation of Israel. And so, the power of faith. Now, I find this very, very challenging. I don't know about you, but at almost any point in my life, I can think of between three and six issues that require enormous faith in order for me to go from now to next year. There are challenges. There's so many challenges in life, aren't there? And you face them. How are we going to get from A to B? Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And what I see, I think the key is this. Faith has two ingredients. We sometimes think it only has one, but Hebrews 11.6 says it has two. Faith must believe that God exists. So that's the mental level. We believe and we must believe that Jesus died for us and so on, as we're taught on Alpha and elsewhere. But the second bit is so interesting. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. And sometimes Christians can be very passive. Yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm fine, I'm jogging along. The whole things are jogging along fine, I'm just jogging along. Life's just jogging along, we're just jogging along. Well, I've adopted the methodology over the years. Earnestly seek God. Talk to him regularly. Ask him, Lord, how do we do this? Give me some guidance here. Show me the way here. What do you want me to do? That's the thing that creates the dynamic power of the Spirit in your life might be something incredibly simple. It doesn't matter. might be something incredibly big. It doesn't matter. Lord, what are we going to do about our business? What am I going to do about that broken family relationship? What are we going to do about that chronic illness? Lord, what am I going to do about my depression? Just help me, show me, lead me the way. We can ask him those questions earnestly. Guess what? He rewards that earnestness. Not necessarily with easy answers, but with real strategies. And my final point is about obstacles. Now, you don't get an obstacle much bigger than Jericho. But Joshua had a choice. Do, we, do I go round it? Or do I face it directly? You and I have that temptation, don't we? Uh, I think we'll have, we won't address this issue right now. I think we'll just leave it for a few years. A little bit sensitive, a little bit difficult. I know what God wants me to do, but I don't fancy doing it. I think I'll go off and do something else for a little bit. We'll come back to it. Don't worry, Lord, I'll get there in the end. Ever had that kind of thinking? Oh, I'll get there in the end, Lord. He's much happier if we look the obstacle in the eye 
and face the fact that it's gigantic and then start exercising faith. And here we come back to the thread. This today is a symbol of living faith, a very humble person. Use this as a sign to everybody that she trusted God and she was going to believe for his deliverance. So I wonder if there's an obstacle in your life. I can think of several in mine. Things that seem, as I speak to you now, impossible. I genuinely can. I can tell you what they are if we had time. Life has a habit of showing things that just seem so very, very difficult or challenging for all sorts of reasons. What I tend to do is I ask the Lord about these obstacles. I say, how are you going to do this? And I try and listen. And when I feel he says something to me, I just start praying about it. And I'll pray about it day after day, sometimes week after week, sometimes month after month, sometimes year after year, and then suddenly there's a breakthrough. Usually different to what I expect. And I want to encourage you today, we're going to have a response in a moment, to think about this thread. Because what I'm going to do at the end is I'm going to invite Martin Shaw to come up and I've instructed him to bring a pair of scissors. It's not generally in his job description, but it's an exception. And he's going to cut this thread into just small little sections of about an inch. And to any who feel they're going to respond this morning, we're, uh, we're going to give you just a little part of this thread as a symbol. It's not magic, by the way. It's a symbol. It's not a sacrament. It's just a symbol. I want you to take to heart the extraordinary faith of Rahab, which the New Testament unashamedly underlines and says, you know, Joshua was great. Yeah, he did quite a good job at Jericho, but Rahab did a pretty good job too. Those are the two people picked out. And the priests would say, well, what about us? And the trumpeters, we haven't got any lips left after seven days. And the commanders of the soldiers, we had a heck of a lot of organization to do. And all the cooks said, the amount of food they consumed during that time. And the sergeant majors, all that grumbling we had to deal with while they were walking around seven days. Why don't we get any commendation? But the writer of Hebrews says, Joshua, Rahab, the ordinary, unseen person who did an extraordinary thing by placing a scarlet thread on the outside of her household. By saying, I trust in Yahweh, I trust in his people, and I'm not putting my trust in anything else. And I don't know how he's going to do it. To me, it seems impossible. I'm just trusting him. So there we are. We sang earlier on Spirit Breakout.
So I'd like Helen and the team to come back. We're going to do the same again. I'd love to sing a verse of that. And then I just sense it's appropriate to bring, make an, an offer to you to just come and receive prayer here at the front. If you want some of Joshua and particularly Rahab's faith to characterize, and that faith was not just, I believe it in my head, but I'm really going to seek God and trust him until he makes the breakthrough. And by the way, the issue you face may be 10, 15 years old. That's not too long for God. Some of the issues I'm still praying about are more than 10 years old and they're still not resolved, but I'm still trusting him because he's spoken to me about them. And so I'm going to take a little bit of this thread home if there's any left. Um, Martin, you better come. I'm going to need your help in a minute. Let's stand. Andy's got some scissors on him. I think we've already got some scissors. Hang on a second. I think, did you have a word? Oh, you want to cut the string as well? You come and join. We need as many people as possible. It's a tough job. Um, so come and join us, yeah. Oh, I see. Martin's asked you. Sorry, I didn't understand. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's just sing a verse of this, shall we? Spirit, spirit break out.